Good afternoon. Welcome to uh, our last uh, event for this quarter. We saved uh, the best for last. Uh, our next uh, uh, quarter's programs will be available very soon. We are working on developing the final list. If you are not on our, on our mailing list, you can sign up and we will add you to the mailing list and we'll send you uh, announcements. Uh, it is uh, truly my pleasure to say a few words about our uh, speaker tonight uh, because he is a remarkable scholar and one of my favorite in the field of Iranian studies. And the reason he is remarkable is because uh, he, uh, you know, universities generally talk about uh, doing multidisciplinary work. They talk the talk, but they never walk the walk. Uh, he actually talks the talks and walks the walks and writes brilliantly on a whole remarkable range of topics. If you want the best scholarly article on soccer in Iran, or rice cooking in Iran, or South Africa in Iran, or the definitive study of uh, Nehzatu Azadi, the freedom movement, his book, 30 years, written in the past, is it still that definitive study. He essentially follows where his heart is. He doesn't write uh, in the traditional sense of the academic uh, scholarship, writing uh, s stuff that two and a half people might read, including himself. He writes what he likes, and when he finds something that he likes, he goes at it with remarkable uh, methodic rigor, and a sense of exhaustive scholarship. And everything he writes, I honestly, truly mean that. And, and the range is remarkable. If you go on his website, you look at his uh, CV, uh, it has all of his articles, you will be, I think, very pleasantly surprised by the multiplicities of disciplines that he has written. And if you read any of them, you will be like me, inspired and awed by his rigor and by his dedication by his wit, uh, and by the range of issues that he has covered. Uh, so when I heard that he's written something on South Africa and Iran, I knew immediately we have to have him back. We generally try to get him out here once every two years at least to uh, have a wonderful new avenue to a different way of doing Iranian uh, scholarship. So please welcome Professor Shahabi. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, do you all hear me if I speak like this? Because I prefer not to talk with a, a microphone. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Milani, for inviting me again. Uh, one of these days, I will ask you to put everything you've said in writing, uh, because uh, it is really very flattering. I don't deserve all this praise, but uh, thank you very much indeed. Before I uh, begin, um, I'd like to know how I should calibrate my remarks. Is there anybody here who is, in addition to the Iranian side, also interested in the South African side? Very good. So, uh, because uh, that, uh, you know, uh, I will balance my paper as opposed to just talking about uh, Iran. Uh, South Africa is a uh, country that I've been 
um, involved with on a scholarly level for many, many years. In fact, while I was doing my PhD, uh, I wanted to write my dissertation on South Africa. Uh, except that my dissertation advisor then said, you know, Persian, few people know Persian, write on Iran. Uh, so uh, I ended up becoming a scholar of Iranian studies, but um, I combined uh, these two interests and uh, uh, have uh, gone to South Africa three times. I've interviewed uh, every single South African diplomat who ever served in Iran before 1979, before relations were broken, uh, before 1979. Uh, and I've interviewed every single Iranian who served in South Africa uh, before uh, 1979. Uh, the um, case of Iran and South Africa is interesting, uh, interesting because both are middle powers. Both are middle powers, um, riparian states of the Indian Ocean, uh, with very complementary uh, economies. Uh, in the sense that while the subsoil of South Africa uh, has many mineral resources, oil isn't one of them. And uh, that's why uh, oil has been a uh, very important uh, trading uh, uh, product between uh, Iran and uh, South Africa. So uh, if we want to look at the relationship between South Africa and Iran uh, from its formation in the 1970s up to the present, I think three periods can be distinguished. Uh, the first period is when the two countries are in sync. Uh, in other words, uh, apartheid era uh, South Africa and Pahlavi Iran, pre-revolutionary Iran, two pro-Western anti-Soviet uh, powers uh, with a complementary relationship as I will discuss. Then we get the Iranian Revolution which has a certain impact on South Africa uh, in, in more than one way, uh, where relations are reduced, but not to naught. Uh, and then again after 1994, uh, democratization in uh, South Africa, when the two countries are again in sync because uh, the ANC uh, pursues a third worldist uh, policy uh, and was uh, very much financially supported by the Islamic Republic in the 1980s up to 1992. So after 1990, between 1994 and uh, the present, we again uh, get a, um, a kind of meeting of the minds and this was of course um, uh, became uh, uh, visible again in April 2016. 16, when President Zuma went to Iran uh, accompanied by 180 South African businessmen. So uh, let me uh, talk a little bit about the uh, emotional background from an Iranian point of view of uh, this relationship. It all goes back to the exile of Reza Shah in uh, South Africa. In 1941, uh, as you all know, the British and the Soviets um, occupy Iran, uh, the ruler of the country, Reza Shah, is persuaded to abdicate and uh, he is taken aboard a British ship. Uh, he thinks he's being taken to, uh, to Argentina, uh, but on the ship uh, he is informed that he is going to the island of Mauritius. So uh, he ends up uh, in, uh, in Mauritius and after a few months, uh, they, uh, uh, he goes to South Africa. And the official story uh, of this move is that he couldn't stand the weather. 
that um, Mauritius was hot and damp. Uh, he was of frail health, and that's why he goes to Johannesburg, which has a continental climate very much like Tehran's. Uh, while I was doing my research in South Africa, however, uh, I was told by some um, foreign ministry officials that there was a second reason, which is that uh, the British feared that Japan might one day conquer the island of Mauritius and set up a nationalist Iranian government uh, under the uh, leadership of uh, Reza Shah, and to prevent that, uh, they took him to, uh, to uh, South Africa. So um, these are the two reasons usually given. He spends a few weeks in, in, in Durban and then go, goes to uh, Johannesburg at the invitation of Prime Minister Jan Smuts. Jan Smuts. And um, uh, he was not the first royal because uh, the Greek royal family had also fled Greece as a result of the Nazi advance and found itself uh, occupying actually the official, the official residence of the Prime Minister and so uh, Libertas and so since that residence was not available uh, a house had to be found uh, and this house was owned by one Colonel Jack Scott uh, a mining magnate uh, who uh, rented his house in Johannesburg to uh, Reza Shah. And uh, Reza Shah dies in Johannesburg in uh, 1944. Uh, those of his children who had accompanied him uh, returned to Iran uh, as well, but this meant that from now on, uh, certain members of the Iranian imperial family had an emotional tie to uh, South Africa, which is where the founder of the dynasty uh, had spent his last uh, few years. Uh, in the 1940s and 1950s, Iran and South Africa maintain no uh, relations, and the beginning of a, um, a, uh, a kind of um, conversation between uh, the two countries comes in the 1960s, uh, and it turns out that in Washington, D.C., the South African embassy and the Iranian embassy are almost next door. Uh, and so the, uh, there was an empty lot between them, and both embassies wanted to buy that lot uh, to expand. Uh, and um, uh, as a result of this, the uh, Iranian uh, ambassador and the South African ambassador, Adeshiri Zahedi and W.C. Noday, uh, start uh, talking to each other. And of course, uh, the, uh, the Iranian ambassador at the time was uh, the former son-in-law of the current ruler of Iran, right? Uh, and obviously, what does uh, what uh, do an Iranian and a South African ambassador talk about when they meet? They talk about Reza Shah's exile, right? Uh, and so. Um, uh, the uh, idea came up uh, for the Iranian state to buy that house, uh, the house in which uh, Reza Shah uh, had lived, um, and um, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, inspiration may have come from uh, the fact that the, the uh, South African government had bought a villa in Switzerland in which Orm Kruger had spent his last uh, few years. And uh, so, um, again, um, uh, Jack Scott was uh, located, uh, but he didn't want to sell his house. 
he didn't want to sell his house. Officially, he said that um, he um, was attached to the house because his, his wife had um, uh, died there. But the real reason was that um, there had been a very damning report about apartheid at the United Nations. Uh, and the person who had written this damning report was an Iranian diplomat, uh, namely Manuchek Ganji. Uh, and so uh, Jack Scott didn't want to sell uh, his house to uh, a, a country uh, which had written this negative uh, report. Uh, but there was also another reason, which was that the deed of the house, the title deed, explicitly said that the property could not be alienated to certain racial groups, such as Asiatics. Uh, and so it wasn't quite sure whether Iranians were Asiatics or not. And this is the beginning of a long engagement with apartheid. Where do Iranians fit in into the quadripartite uh, division of South Africa that the apartheid regime had um, instituted? Uh, for your information, for those of you not familiar, according to the apartheid ideology, there were four classes of people. Uh, whites, uh, coloreds, which were people of mixed race, Indians, and Africans or blacks, right? Uh, and uh, there was a hierarchy between them with uh, whites uh, with full citizenship rights, blacks with no citizenship rights at all, and coloreds and Indians somewhere in uh, the middle. So, um, the, uh, so there were legal barriers on the South African side, but then this matter was taken so seriously by the South African government that the House of Assembly, the South African Parliament, actually passed a law uh, to make this transfer uh, possible. And uh, the, uh, uh, the reason why the South African government was so eager to uh, bring this uh, to a close was uh, that uh, at the international level hostility to apartheid was uh, growing and uh, therefore it became desirable for the South Africans to have friendly ties to a major oil producer, uh, which was uh, uh, Iran. So, um, in the 1960s, both South Africa and Iran develop a push to expand their foreign relations. Uh, South Africa to get out of the isolation that uh, apartheid had uh, put it in. Um, and so, uh, and in Iran, uh, because uh, the Shah of Iran uh, wanted uh, international support for his territorial claims on the three islands of uh, the Persian Gulf uh, and uh, he needed allies at the UN uh, and uh, so there was a certain diplomatic push of Iran into Africa, not only South Africa but also Kenya, Senegal, uh, etc. in order to have votes at the uh, United Nations uh, General uh, Assembly. Hmm? Uh, so, uh, in other words, there were common uh, interests, uh, and these are as follows. By the end of the 1960s, um, both Iran and uh, South Africa have anti-communist governments that are weary of communist expansion. Uh, both are fighting uh, Soviet-backed insurgencies in neighboring countries, uh, South Africa and Angola, and uh, Iran and Oman. Uh, both maintained cordial relations with Israel. Neither was a member of the non-aligned movement. 
Both of them had tense relations with many countries in their immediate vicinity, uh, South Africa with most sub-Saharan African countries and Iran uh, with the most important of its Arab neighbors, namely Iraq and uh, Egypt. And both were dynamic economies with high growth rates. To sustain this growth, Iran needed industrial goods and South Africa needed oil. So that was the economic basis of this uh, relationship. So afterwards, a a, uh, uh, representative of the National Iranian Oil Company uh, visits uh, South Africa, and this has to be seen uh, in light of the Shah's policy to gain elbow room at the expense of the big oil companies. Uh, Most of Iranian oil was, of course, as you all know, marketed by the big uh, companies, but there was a little bit of elbow room, so the Shah started a fact, uh, I mean, NIOC uh, began constructing a refinery in India, there were deals with Israel, and so the South African side was done by NIOC itself, as opposed to the foreign oil companies that were buying uh, Iranian uh, oil. So, um, at this point... Uh, we get a a spy uh, story uh, in the sense that uh, a Soviet spy traveling on a a Canadian passport was unmasked by South African security. And uh, when they looked into his uh, papers, they found lots of connections with Iran, Um, with contacts with people in Iran. So South African security makes these documents available to SAVAK, to to the Iranian uh, security organization, which immediately searches the house of all these contacts, but they were all gone. Uh, So nothing transpired, but the Iranian authorities appreciated the fact that the uh, South African state had made these uh, documents uh, available. So, uh, uh, at this point, uh, the um, uh, issue of diplomatic relations uh, came up, and uh, given the world public opinion uh, against apartheid, the Iranian government was not willing uh, to have formal ambassadorial relations. So, uh, they uh, sent a delegation to, Iraq, to South Africa to look, you know, what can we do? And they hit upon a formula which had been pioneered by the Japanese. And this formula meant that a senior diplomat uh, was accredited as ambassador to Lesotho and Swaziland, but resided as consul general in Johannesburg. So uh, this, the consul general in Johannesburg, therefore, was in reality an ambassador, but accredited only to Lesotho and to uh, Swaziland, right? Uh, and uh, the same was true for South Africa. South Africa sent the consul general to uh, uh, Tehran. And these, uh, reaction, uh, these relations were uh, established, but uh, the Iranian government always said uh, very clearly that they did not uh, support apartheid, and uh, this you know, led to some low-level friction, as uh, we will uh, see. Uh, the, uh, there were very few. I mean, the Iranian embassy or the Iranian consular officials were the only Muslim. Uh, officials in uh, South Africa. Uh, The Lebanese consulate had been closed a few years earlier and uh, so uh, basically uh, the Iranian consulate also established relations with South Africa's uh, small but rather affluent and influential Muslim uh, community. 
the Iranian Consul General was once invited to attend an Eid celebration in Johannesburg. Empress Farah, the wife of uh, the country's ruler, donated 15,000 rand to the establishment of a Muslim community center uh, in uh, Johannesburg uh, and uh, so on. Um, and at one point, the uh, uh, some... Um, Indians, Johannesburg Indians, wanted to hold a reception in a new hotel, the Carlton in Johannesburg, but they fell afoul of apartheid, so they talked to the Iranian consul general, and uh, the modus vivendi that was found was that the Iranian consulate general would, uh, would uh, sponsor the reception, uh, which the Indians then held in, uh, in uh, this uh, hotel. So what I'm trying to say is that the uh, uh, Iranian consular staff in Johannesburg did try to reach out to uh, different uh, communities in uh, South Africa, including the Lebanese, 26,000 residents who had no longer any diplomatic representation and who would sometimes turn to the uh, Iranians as well. Uh, the same goes true with the Jewish community of uh, South Africa because this Jewish community uh, included a number of Iranian Jews. Uh, or Ashkenazi Jews who had come through uh, Iran and then settled in uh, uh, South Africa. Hmm? Uh, one thing that the Iranian government refused to do was to recognize the homelands. Uh, as some of you may know, uh, as part of the apartheid uh, policy, uh, nominal uh, independence had been given to some stripes of some little pieces of territory where the Africans were supposed to enjoy independence, like Transkai, Siskai, and so on. Uh, and so the South Africans would have liked Iran to rec rec uh, recognize the independence of these, but Iran, like the rest of the world, refused to uh, uh, do so. Um, so, uh, on the political level, there were visits. Um, at one point, one, one of the sisters of the Shah went there. She unveiled a, uh, a statue of her father. Um, South African government ministers visited Iran. And as late as October 1978, I find this very interesting and hard to believe right now, uh, as late as October 1978, while revolutionary fervor was reaching a peak, the South African foreign minister, Pik Buerta, actually went to Iran, uh, visited Iran to try to keep Iranian oil flowing. This is October 1978. Wonder what kind of reception he had. So let's talk now a little bit about these uh, relations. Um, the uh, oil uh, becomes important uh, because, A, as I said, uh, the Shah wanted to expand his, uh, the uh, international activities, the downstream activities of NIOC. So a uh, uh, factory, uh, is, uh, a refinery, is uh, built, uh, Natref, near Sasselberg, uh, and uh, all, all the oil, I mean, the, the refinery was calibrated to process uh, Iranian uh, oil. Now, the building of this factory is uh, quite, uh, quite interesting, uh, and for this uh, I have to go back to where Iranians fit into the apartheid scheme. Uh, one I, one uh, piece of information that you very often see in books and the press is that Iranians were considered honorary whites. This is repeated uh, over and over again. This is actually not true, uh, and it is 
mentioned by extrapolation from the Japanese case. Uh, because originally Ch Japanese and Chinese were considered colored. Uh, the Chinese were considered colored up to the end, but at one point, uh, I think a Japanese uh, consular official is not picked up by a bus. Uh, so the Japanese government protests, and the South African government says, okay, from now on the Japanese are honorary whites. Uh, you know, Japanese are white, uh, Chinese are not. Uh, but uh, the Iranian case is, uh, is different uh, because in the 1950s, an Iranian um, engineer in London had married a South African and moved to uh, South Africa, uh, Nasrullah Elahi. Uh, and um, uh, at that point, uh, it was decided, because the woman he married, who is actually now a famous painter in South Africa, uh, Alice Elahi, a famous landscape, landscape painter, uh, she was the daughter of a politician in South Africa, so uh, the decision is made uh, to officially make uh, Iranians whites. Uh, and so Iranians had been white in South Africa ever since the uh, 1950s, and the reasoning is also interesting. It all goes back to uh, Lebanese Christians. Uh, because in the 19th century, a number of Christians from Lebanon and Syria had emigrated to South Africa. And so the question arose, what race are they? And this matter was taken to court, and uh, it was decided, uh, I mean, the Lebanese argued that they were from the same land as Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ couldn't possibly have been anything but white, uh, as a result of which Middle Easterners were all white. Uh, and this uh, then uh, benefited uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, Iranians uh, as well. So, uh, Iranians are white, uh, and the NIOC is building a, re a refinery in Sasselberg, right? Uh, except that Iranians come in all sorts of uh, hues and colors. Uh, basically, all the races that you have in South Africa you can find in Iran as well, although in very different proportions, of course. Uh, and the people in the south of Iran are relatively dark-skinned, right? So uh, you get all these NIOC officials, uh, the workers, the engineers, etc., uh, who go to uh, South Africa. Uh, and uh, this is an adult audience, so I can tell you a story that the Consul General of Iran told me. Uh, the question arose, uh, you know, you have 400 Iranian men. Uh, what do they do on weekends? Uh, and uh, in South Africa, apparently, uh, even brothels were divided by color. Uh, so the white brothels wouldn't let them in because they had dark skin color, uh, nor could they go to the colored brothels. So the Iranian consul general uh, actually rented buses to ship these people to Swaziland. Uh, and they would spend the weekend in Swaziland uh, to have a good time. Uh, and then they would come back to uh, Sasselberg for their, um, uh, to do uh, their work. So, uh, in other words, oil ties uh, uh, develop. Uh, and uh, in 1973, uh, 1970, yeah, in 1973, uh, the Arab countries, the Arab OPEC countries, extend the embargo against Israel to South Africa. And this, again, was an international deal. Uh, African countries that had recognized Israel were enticed to break political relations with Israel in exchange of Arab countries uh, putting an oil embargo on South Africa. Hmm? 
So uh, South Africa joins Israel in the uh, in the uh, number of countries that are boycotted as far as oil is concerned, and Iran immediately makes good on the shortcoming. So at this point, after the Arab oil embargo on South Africa, Iran becomes the lone supplier of uh, South African oil. And by 1978, 97% of South African oil actually comes from Iran. Uh, Iran is incredibly important to uh, South Africa. The Shah is sometimes criticized for this uh, in interviews with Jeune Afrique and so on. Uh, but he says, you know, we don't approve of apartheid, but for me, national interest comes first. And if it's the national interest of Iran to have uh, oil contact with <coughs> South Africa, so be it. So much for oil. The other uh, important part of cooperation in the 1970s was nuclear. Uh, because um, in 1967, the head of the South African Atomic Energy Board uh, had declared that South Africa is willing to assist eight African and Middle Eastern countries in many aspects of nuclear technology. So um, at that point, um, uh, a... Uh, uh, doctor from a hospital in, the, in Cape Town spent nine months in Iran uh, teaching, uh, instructing Iranian medical staff in the use of radioisotopes. And uh, this is the beginning of a uh, fruitful uh, relationship. In uh, 1974, uh, the two countries agree officially to cooperate in the nuclear field. And in 1975, a $700 million agreement is signed between uh, South Africa and Iran, according to which Iran would invest in South Africa's planned uranium enrichment plant and in return be assured of 14,000 tons of uranium oxide. Now, this is very important uh, because Iran, uh, want, even then, wanted to have full control over its nuclear enrichment cycle, which is something that neither the French nor the Americans were willing to give to Iran. Right? So, again, the Shah tried to break out of this, these constraints that the French and the Americans put on uh, Iran by signing this agreement with South Africa. Add to that the fact that at the time, South Africa is in control of what is now Namibia, uh, Southwest Africa, uh, where uh, a major uranium mine, Rusing, uh, is being established by the South Africans. So uh, the Shah in 1976 buys a 15% share uh, in this Rusing mine, which to the best of my knowledge, Iran still has. Uh, and the idea was that... Uh, since Iran has access to this uranium mine, this uranium mine would uh, then uh, provide Iran with uranium. At the same time, the Shah bought 10% of Eurodif in Paris and in France, hmm? a, a, a uranium enrichment plant in the northwest of Paris. So what in fact transpires is a, is a triangular a relationship between Iran, South Africa, and France, where Iran ships oil to South Africa, where it owns part of the refinery at Sasselberg. Uh, it gets its uranium because it owns part of the uranium mine. This uranium is now shipped to France, where Iran owns 10% of the enrichment facilities, and enriched uranium will then be sent to Iran to power Iran's planned nuclear plants. Right? So, uh, in other words, it's a very well thought out scheme 
between these three countries. Now, the interesting thing is that these three countries always denied that there was a triangular deal. They always insisted uh, that these are three bilateral relationships. But it may or may not be a coincidence that the South African minister who signed all these agreements from Tehran, he goes straight to Paris. So uh, a certain amount of coordination was uh, definitely uh, there. There were other trade links uh, as well. The South Africans, with their expertise in mining, uh, actually start a mining school uh, in Iran, Madrasir Aliyah Madan Shahrud, in the town of uh, Shahrud. A number of South Africans uh, uh, go there and teach. Uh, there were other uh, transportation in the Indian Ocean is very cheap. Uh, so uh, South Africa exported iron ore, steel, asbestos, wallpaper, uh, etc. Uh, to Iran, and Iran exported household appliances, marble, pistachios, as always, uh, detergent, carpets, uh, shoes, uh, dates, uh, etc. to uh, South Africa. Most importantly was cement. Iran, of course, in the 1970s is going through a construction boom. Right? Uh, things are being built, every, built everywhere. There's not enough cement around. So uh, in 1974, uh, Iran buys 6% of South Africa's total cement uh, production and 25% of all of South African steel exports. And this, in fact, slows down the South African economy. Uh, there, there are in 1976 the construction uh, industry in Port Elizabeth uh, comes almost to a complete standstill because all the cement is going to Iran uh, so um, uh, the South African government had made a conscious decision that supplying Iran was more important uh, than the South African uh, uh, construction uh, company this brings me to uh, another one, uh, uh, aspect, which is military cooperation. As I said, two countries, Indian Ocean, uh, anti-Soviet, fighting uh, communist insurgencies in their uh, vicinity. Uh, and this has to be seen in light of the British retreat from east of Suez. Because the Shah tried to fill the void left by the departure of British troops. He didn't want any Western troops in the Indian Ocean, uh, any Western military presence, uh, but he was an ally of the West, so he said, we'll do it ourselves. We don't need Americans and British here, we'll do it ourselves. And, you know, America uh, agreed with that. The trouble was that the Soviet had uh, bases in Iraq, Aden, and uh, South, Yemen, South Yemen, and Somalia, right? So, um, here again, uh, the uh, South Africans and the Iranians uh, start uh, cooperating. Uh, there's a base in uh, South Africa, uh, Simontown, Simonstown. Uh, Simon and facilities are made available to Iranian ships to dock there to be repaired, etc., uh, etc. Uh, et uh, there is a permanent mission of the Iranian Admiralty in Simonstown. Uh, and uh, one, uh, uh, one interesting thing is that uh, these are, uh, in the early 1970s, the Suez Canal is still closed, so Soviet ships leaving the Baltic and taking weapons to Vietnam have to go around the Cape. Uh, and South African airplanes take pictures of uh, these Soviet ships. Now, some of these ships then go uh, northeast to Vietnam, 
but some of these ships go due north to Iraq. Uh, and the South Africans make these pictures available to the Shah. And so uh, every time the Shah meets the Soviet ambassador, uh, he can say, oh, you know, very interesting, you shipped another hundred tanks to Iraq. Um, and the Soviet ambassador never knows how the Shah knows that. It's South African airplanes that are taking these pictures as the ships are rounding the, uh, uh, the Cape. So, um, uh, this uh, is uh, the, uh, 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 the story of the uh, cooperation uh, between uh, Iran and uh, South Africa. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, the, uh, uh, the difficulty of some of these uh, uh, less fair-skinned uh, Iranians in South Africa, be they sailors or uh, NOC uh, officials. Uh, there were actually also, there was a more tragic uh, accident when three uh, Iranians were actually killed for being white. Uh, these were three Baha'is who were um, uh, conducting a service, a multiracial service, uh, and uh, members of the Azanian People's Liberation Army, which was the military arm of the Pan-Africanist Congress, uh, stormed uh, the church where the beating were being held, told the whites to go one way and the blacks to go the other way, and they killed the whites, including these uh, three uh, uh, Iranians. So... Um, uh, in other words, some Iranians did uh, pay for their lives for apartheid uh, uh, policy. The two assassins uh, later apologized during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings in uh, 1998. So, uh, in other words, a, uh, a relationship between two countries uh, based on realpolitik, uh, advantageous to both regimes, neither of which, of course, is democratically legitimated. Neither the Shah's regime nor the apartheid regime is democratically leg legitimated, so they can, they can make whatever policy they like, and both try to uh, gain elbow room for themselves with this uh, cooperation. And then comes the Iranian Revolution. And, of course, the revolutionaries, be they Islamists or leftists, are very much opposed to uh, uh, apartheid. Uh, and um, the state-to-state uh, uh, -state relations suffer. Uh, in early 1979, the South African uh, staff leaves uh, Iran. Uh, and uh, all the uh, sort of the day-to-day -day functioning of the uh, uh, consulate is left in the hands of uh, a local employee. He was a student of economics, um, and his name is Iraj Abedian. Uh, and um, he wraps up things. Uh, you know, one of the stories he told me when I met him was that, of course, the South African uh, consulate in Tehran, as you might imagine, had a wonderful wine cellar. Uh, and uh, he had to get rid of uh, all of these bottles of wine, and he gave them to all his friends who were very happy, because, you know, uh, at this point, prohibition is uh, gaining uh, ground in Tehran. Uh, with his contacts, because Iraj Obadian was a Baha'i who could then not study uh, in Iran anymore because Baha'is were not allowed to attend university, so he goes to 
uh, uh, South Africa and of course becomes one of the most prominent economists in uh, South Africa right now. Uh, he was the chief economist of Standard Bank uh, and you know, if you go to South Africa his name is everywhere in the press uh, and so on. He's probably the most successful Iranian immigrant to, uh, to uh, South Africa. Um, the uh, uh, biggest impact on uh, South Africa uh, was, of course, oil. Um, the, the question was, uh, would uh, oil still flow? Uh, the um, Iranian government officially uh, let it be known that uh, there would be no oil, but in fact there was. Uh, oil kept flowing uh, because much of Iranian oil was actually not marketed by the Iranian government but marketed by other companies and uh, those uh, sent um, uh, uh, oil to Iran um, and uh, uh, part of this oil uh, deal involved arms because by the 1980s both South Africa and Iran are under an arms embargo. Uh, Iran is under an arms embargo because of the hostage crisis, South Africa because of apartheid, but South Africa, being having more experience, has put in place a very efficient embargo-busting infrastructure. And they make this embargo-busting infrastructure available to Iran. And so South Africa becomes, becomes a conduit for arms sales to Iran, which is at war with Iraq. And so secret deals are signed whereby Iran still supplies South Africa with oil and gets arms from South Africa, including arms from Israel. Arms from all sorts of countries are brought to South Africa, the papers are changed, you know, ship from one ship to another and it goes to Iraq. Uh, of course, what the Iranians didn't know was that South Africa was doing exactly the same with Iraq. Uh, Iraq was also being supplied with uh, arms in exchange for, uh, for oil. So, um, in other words, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, anti-apartheid policies of the Islamic Republic did not immediately, did not have a major effect on uh, oil supplies. The biggest effect that the Iranian revolution had on South Africa was uh, on the political behavior of South Africa's Muslims. Uh, as I said, about 2% of South Africa are uh, Muslims. Uh, most of them, in Cape Town, they are qualified as coloreds, in Durban as Indians. Uh, and uh, the religious leadership of the Muslims in South Africa had, until the 1960s, been rather conservative. In other words, there was an unspoken agreement with the government that if you leave us alone, if you, lead us, uh, if you leave us free to practice our religion, we will not be too much involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. Uh, there were a few individual Muslims in the ANC, uh, in leadership positions even, uh, but on the whole, the ulema were quite uh, conservative. Um, this begins to change when the writings of Ali Shariati are made available in South Africa. Uh, Ali Shariati's writings were being translated into English uh, in, in Texas. Uh, because Ibrahim Yazdi was in Texas, etc. Now, Ibrahim Yazdi meets a number of South African Muslims from Durban, uh, and these South African Muslims, whom I all interviewed, carry the ideas of Shari Ali Shariati in terms of, and the English translations of his work, 
to uh, South Africa, where they avidly read, where, they, where these works are avidly read by young Muslims who are unhappy with the older generation's accommodation with apartheid. Right? So there's a generational uh, split. Uh, and uh, this becomes particularly uh, uh, um, evident in the aftermath of the 1976 Soweto riots. In 1976 there are riots in Soweto, a number of people are killed, and that really makes the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa much more militant than it was before, and now Muslims join in more important numbers, uh, and many of them are made uh, sort of aware that Islam can be read as a revolutionary ideology by the writings of Ali Sharti. Not only Ali Sharti, of course, you know, Maududi and uh, Sayyid Qutb and all, all these people play a role uh, as well. Uh, and by 1985, the prominence of Ali Shariati's thought among young Muslims is such that even the Afrikaans language press uh, has articles uh, about it, which is of course not a coincidence because the Muslims of the Cape speak mostly Afrikaans. Um, so the overthrow of the Shah was met with joy uh, by most Muslims in South Africa. My friends there told me that uh, on the campuses of the universities, Muslim students were wearing uh, t-shirts with a picture of Khomeini. Um, and uh, there, uh, in particular, one author, one South African author, very famous novelist, uh, Tatamkulu Africa, uh, was so, uh, he had converted to Islam, but he became so, so uh, enthusiastic about the revolution that he actually converted to Shiism. Uh, he converted to Shiism and created a little organization called uh, Al-Jihad. Now, uh, this is very, very different from the Shiism practice in Iran. I, when I was in South Africa in the year 2000, I interviewed uh, some Al-Jihad uh, members. Uh, the women were unveiled, uh, and they told me that they are for liberation of everybody, including gays and lesbians. Uh, so, and, uh, but they were upset that the Iranian government uh, didn't take them seriously. Um, so it, it remained a, a small group. Of, uh, of revolutionaries who had their own ideas about what liberation in Iran uh, had uh, entailed. Uh, other Muslim youth groups like the MYM uh, and so on were sympathetic but gradually as the Islamic Republic sort of uh, became less liberal uh, and more Shiite, uh, their support became ever more critical. Uh, in the sense that in the beginning this was an Islamic revolution uh, against imperialism, so Muslims in South Africa are in favor of it. Uh, delegations start going to Iran, then the Islamic institutions take shape, the constitution uh, is voted on, uh, and so gradually uh, these people who have a first-hand knowledge of Iran realize that this is not an Islamic republic, this is a Shiite republic. And uh, the, uh, uh, the Muslims in South Africa tend to be, uh, are all, all of them are Sunnis. Uh, and so gradually uh, there was a certain disenchantment. People would support Iran against America, but not see Iran as an exemplar uh, anymore, except for one uh, little group called Qibla, 
which uh, you know is funded by was funded by the uh, Iranian uh, government, and uh, apparently they would go around staging Gotstay. Uh, um, what stay um, demonstrations uh, and shout um, slogans like Mark Bar Monoferin, Mark Bar Shoravi. So, uh, in other words, why a South African Muslim group would chant Mark Bar Monoferin isn't quite clear, uh, but uh, they were basically funded by uh, uh, Iranians. Later on, uh, of course, the, uh, in, as the Iran-Iraq war progresses, Arab money comes in as well and uh, uh, deepens the gap between mainstream uh, Muslim groups in South Africa and the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, the final uh, relationship is that between Iran and the ANC. Uh, early on, um, sort of 1978, 79, 1980, the Iranian government probably had a greater affinity with the Pan-African Congress, uh, the PAC, which was more radical, more militant uh, than the African National Congress. But the trouble with the PAC from Iran's point of view was that they also had close relations with Iraq. Uh, and uh, this is a story that ha I have not been able to research because none of my attempts to uh, contact the PAC were actually successful. Nobody ever wrote back, nobody ever emailed back, uh, etc. So I don't know exactly what transpired between the PAC and the Islamic Republic. Uh, but I do know that as a result of this, Iran inched closer to the uh, ANC. Uh, and uh, uh, after 1989, when Iranian foreign policy in general becomes somewhat more uh, moderate, Iran starts making financial contributions to the Af uh, uh, African National uh, Congress. Uh, and in July 1992, at the invitation of President Rafsanjani, Nelson Mandela actually paid a three-day visit to uh, uh, Iran. Um, and um, the, uh, uh, the, the support really mattered. I met one journalist in uh, Johannesburg uh, who was active in the, uh, the anti-apartheid movement, always on the run from the authorities and so on. Uh, he told me that when they would leave South Africa and enter Zimbabwe, the first port of call would be the Iranian embassy in Harare. Uh, where they would be given uh, money, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et so, in other words, uh, much of the subsequent uh, South African policy post-apartheid policy to Iran is explained, can be explained, by this tie between the ANC and the uh, Islamic uh, Republic. Which brings me to the last part, uh, relationship, the relationship uh, in, uh, since 1994. Um, the, it, there we get a sort of struggle, because on the one hand, the South African constitution, which is the most progressive in the world, uh, calls on the South African government to base its foreign policy on human rights, on the respect for human rights. Right? On the other hand, uh, the ANC is a liberation movement which has anti-imperialism in its DNA. Uh, and so uh, there is a certain third worldism uh, which has affinities with the third worldism 
of uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Right? And uh, so diplomatic relations are re-established in uh, 1994. Uh, not much transpires in the 1990s, but in the 2000s, in the first decade of the 21st century, uh, relations, again, uh, flower uh, a little bit. In 2005, uh, a certain Mr. Rouhani, and I think it's the current president, uh, actually tries to persuade the South Africans to make nuclear know-how available uh, to Iran because, you know, South Africa is a country that uh, had actually developed nuclear weapons and destroyed them. Uh, the first country which, which uh, so far the only country which has actually voluntarily renounced uh, nuclear might, nuclear weapons. Um, and um, uh, he apparently met uh, none other than President Mbeki uh, himself. Uh, so um, Iran still has uh, uh, interest in oil. And uh, so gradually some, uh, you know, the old complementarity that we had witnessed in the 1960s and 1970s reasserts itself. The, country, the two countries are economically complementary. Iran again becomes a major uh, supplier of oil to South Africa because the, you know, the refinery is, is geared, calibrated to uh, Iranian oil. And in fact, South Africa invests uh, in a joint venture inside Iran, which, you know, the name is uh, very interesting, it's called Arya Sassel. Hmm? Arya, of course, harks back to the Iranian myth of Aryanism, and it's interesting that even under the Islamic Republic, this myth won't go away. Uh, Arya uh, Sassel. Uh, but later on, they sell their stake because uh, it, uh, it doesn't work. So, uh, basically, um, the problem is the nuclear issue. And on the nuclear issue, South Africa, on the one hand, is committed to non-proliferation, right? It's the one country that had renounced nuclear weapons. On the other hand, it stands up for Iran's right not to be bullied by the Western powers. So uh, what the, uh, the, the outcome of this struggle for the South African soul is to insist that Iran's nuclear program be discussed not at the Security Council, but at the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. The argument being that it's only the IAEA that has the technical know-how to verify whether Iran is in fact breaching its obligations or not breaching its obligations, and that the matter is a technical matter which shouldn't be left to a political forum like the United Nations Security Council. Right? Uh, the other thing about uh, uh, South, the ANC is that it's committed to negotiations. I mean, after all, the, uh, you know, the, de the democratization of South Africa, the break with the past, was accomplished as a result of negotiations. So they always insist that, uh, you know, this matter that it's useless to, uh, to threaten Iran, that uh, threats against Iran's territorial integrity are counterintuitive, that uh, all the sides have to negotiate, etc. And when Brazil and Turkey try to step in to find a solution. South Africa actually so very much supports that. So the South African votes at the Security Council go 
sometimes this way, sometimes uh, the other way, but most of the time the West prevails on South Africa to vote the sanctions. So most of the sanctions at the Security Council are voted with South Africa's voice on those occasions that South Africa is actually a member of the uh, United Nations Security Council, eliciting some friendly complaints by the Iranian government. You know, we expect it better, and uh, so on and so on. So uh, the uh, uh, nuclear issue is, uh, uh, is uh, one where South Africa basically um, tries to have it both ways. Go against proliferation, but also speak up for Iran's right to have a peaceful nuclear uh, uh, development. Uh, the other big economic connection was uh, cell phones. Uh, and here the story becomes somewhat murky, uh, because uh, at one point uh, the South African uh, cell phone company MTN, which was then actually uh, either owned or uh, led by none other than Cyril Ramaphosa, the current deputy president, uh, gets, a, uh, uh, gets a license to uh, start operating in Iran. Uh, a 49% share in a cell phone company. And uh, it's uh, one quarter of the profits of MTM, MTN, the South African cell phone company, are actually generated in Iran. Where the murky side comes in is that this contract had been originally given to a Turkish company called Turkcell. Hmm? Turkcell, and then suddenly the Iranian government withdraws its license and uh, gives the license to a to uh, the South African company. The Turks have been suing ever since. Uh, Turkcell has, has been suing ever since, but it's not clear whom they can sue and in what country they could sue. But the action is going on. Uh, and uh, moreover, uh, it seems that some bribery uh, was also involved because uh, soon thereafter the South African ambassador to Iran uh, was relieved of his positions inside the South African Foreign Ministry. So many people suspect that uh, there was some bribery involved to uh, punish the Turks uh, and establish friendly relations with South Africa. Unfortunately, MTM uh, has not really benefited from this because uh, while the operation in Iran is very profitable, the profits cannot be repatriated because of the banking sanctions. So MTN actually has $1 billion in Iran uh, waiting to be taken to uh, South Africa. Hmm? Um, and of course, uh, the, uh, the, uh, 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 in 2015, suddenly a big report uh, comes out, Iranian spying activities in uh, South Africa. Uh, and uh, it turns out that Iran had set up many, many uh, institutions in South Africa and the South African security uh, agencies kept an eye on uh, these uh, activities and found that they did things other than what they said they did. Uh, so uh, this includes the local office of the Ahlul Bayt Foundation, uh, which is a Shiite organization. This includes a, an organization called the Silk Road, uh, this includes the Iranian embassy, uh, this includes a number of organizations, and uh, basically it turns out that 
uh, all of these organizations which were supposed to uh, be uh, sort of promoting Persian language and culture or promoting uh, the knowledge of Twelver Shiism or, or Iran's um, you know, commercial interests were staffed by uh, people from the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence uh, who had um, set up networks in South Africa to, uh, to uh, overcome the embargo, embargo-busting uh, networks to buy things that they were not supposed to buy, to uh, acquire technologies that they were not supposed to uh, acquire, uh, and so on. So uh, it seems that this report, which was available on the internet, I mean, I, everything I tell you is common knowledge. I have no insight track to South African security, I can assure you. Uh, this, uh, uh, this, apparently, this uh, 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 report was uh, issued at the, uh, at the sort of request of British intelligence, MI6, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and um, uh, I have other evidence corroborating the presence of lots of Iranian Ministry of Intelligence officials in uh, uh, in uh, South Africa, some of them, um, you know, have, have having a front carpet dealerships and uh, that sort of thing. Some Iranians in South Africa have told uh, this to me uh, too. Nonetheless, the fact remains that the South African ANC government is still committed to having friendly relations with Iran. Uh, and so um, the uh, this report has been taken down from the internet. Uh, Fortunately, I had saved it, uh, but it's no longer on the South African government website. You can find it on the Al Jazeera website, but not on the South African government uh, website. And, uh, of course, inside South Africa, there are other voices now which criticize the government for being too uh, close to Iran. And those are voices that I think are sponsored by some African countries. Uh, because, of course, the biggest rival for South Africa in Africa is Nigeria. And the Nigerian government uh, is facing a growing Shiite movement, uh, which uh, is uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, disrupting the unity of uh, Muslims in Nigeria. Uh, there's, of course, Egypt is a member of the African Union. Uh, some, uh, Sudan is a member of the African Union. And Saudi diplomacy has managed to uh, draw, to put a wedge between Iran and some of these African countries. There was a point a few months ago when a number of African countries, Sudan, Djibouti, etc., suddenly broke off relations with uh, South Africa, uh, with, with Iran, right? And so uh, South Africa is criticized by a number of AU members for its close relationship with, uh, with uh, Iran. And um, this did not prevent the president of South Africa, uh, Zuma, uh, to go to Iran, as I mentioned, in April uh, 2016, with uh, an entourage of 180 businessmen, uh, and a number of memorandums of understanding were signed that tend to be very general. Cooperation in the field of communications. Uh, co cooperation in the struggle against terrorism. Cooperation. So, uh, we will have to see whether the uh, nuclear uh, accord uh, will open up Iran uh, to the point where it is actually worthwhile 
for South African companies to deal bus to do business uh, in Iran. Uh, but if it ever comes to that, if ever Iran is you know reinserted into international banking networks, uh, etc., etc., I think South African companies are ready uh, to uh, take uh, to take uh, advantage of that. So, in other words, to wrap up this uh, rather long talk, and I really thank you for your patience. Um, there are some uh, natural affinities. Uh, complementarities uh, between Iran and South Africa which were fully operational uh, in the period of apartheid and Pahlavi which became somewhat subdued uh, in the period between the Iranian revolution and uh, the end of apartheid and which then again began flowering again uh, when uh, the ANC took over uh, in South Africa with its historic debt uh, towards uh, Iran. Thank you very much.